the idea of giving up comfort, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, Midwestern middle class comfort looks like in the 80s compared to going down to Mexico and, and living an un, unpredictable life, I think was, I mean, I commend my parents for it. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of danger. There was probably mm-hmm. a lot of fear. But I think just even pushing through that with the attempt to be faithful to build the kingdom, I respect. Today on the podcast, we welcome my friend, Mr. Tony Tucci. He's a husband, father of six kids, and works in the area of real estate here in Madison. But more than anything, we wanted him to come on the podcast to share about his life. He's endured some really interesting things, um, learned Spanish on the streets of Mexico as a missionary kid, working through grief, losing his mother as a young boy, and working through some financial challenges and all that he learned from that as an adult. And so it's a great interview. Hope you enjoy it. I grew up in a family that was a missionary family. My parents decided to moved to Mexico to become missionaries, kind of in part following another family that we, our church had supported. And this was probably 1987. I was seven years old at the time. And my parents, like I said, I was one of six. My youngest brother at the time, I think was like one, maybe nine months old. And uh, Big family, right? Yep. Six kids. So six at the time I was one time. of six. Now there's nine of us. Okay. Yep. So you moved to Mexico, six kids, and you're seven. Yep. Do you do you remember like how do you have any memory of like your parents talking to you about like hey guys we're moving to Mexico? The memories I have was that we had gone to Mexico for a month. You know, looking back now it was probably like I don't know if it was an exploratory trip for my parents at the time or if it was we went down there, we were there for a month and then they felt the call to go down afterwards, but I remember being excited to go there and visit and then when we got back, I just remember being sad that we were leaving our friends and, you know, that kind of thing. So you don't have any memory of like a family meeting, like, all right, guys, here's the deal. We're... No, I'm sure there was, but I don't. Yeah. I, I, th- it's not like a defining memory for me. Either. So, so you're seven. You guys all moved to Mexico. Do you like? What are your first memories of being a kid in Mexico? Like, what what do you remember? Well, I I actually when I th- when I think about it. I think about it mostly fondly. You know, I think mm-hmm. I, we lived there we, when we moved there. I was seven. And when we moved back in the early 90s, I was almost 13. So mm-hmm. actually probably the exact age that my son T-Bone is today. Mm-hmm. So he's 12 and a half, I think, today. So I, I was about the same age I was. So I remember having great memories. I, mem- I don't remember like the challenge of learning the language. I just learned it in the street. Um, we lived with a family for, the I don't know, probably the first six months. And then... We ended up renting a, a house that we, funny story, which could be a tangent. We ended up getting kicked out of that house on Christmas day. Wow. It was a two bedroom house and all six of us kids slept in one bed. We slept in a, um, it was a water bed with no water in it. <laughs> so it was just the frame of the bed and um, our rent was super cheap. There was two bedrooms, concrete floor above us. True story. There was probably the, our landlord used the home she raised chickens. So the second story of our home, which was exposed to open air, you yeah. know, like it is in a lot yeah. of third world countries, um, just concrete. There was probably about a hundred chickens up there. Oh my gosh. And so, um, for whatever reason we got kicked out of the house and, uh, we had to go back up to the, 
to the border to renew our visa and then we came back and we um our friend of ours had found a house for us like 45 minutes away in a small town so back up though kicked out on christmas day like the landlord just comes and is like she gave i mean she probably kicked my parents out like a day or two beforehand but we ended up moving out on christmas day and um going back up to but the cool thing looking back on it now and again i haven't thought about this in years you know that's the kind of thing that you would think would if if you were you know hyper spiritual that you might think those are reasons to not you know hey maybe we're not called here we should right. probably just go back we should right. probably just throw in the towel right things aren't lining up this is a, see it as a closed door right you know but it, you know it ended up being great because we moved to a different town and the home that we lived in that you know, I don't know how much they rented it for, but it was a wonderful home. It was a second home of some big wig in Mexico city. Uh, and, uh, it was a really nice home. We went from this like, you know, dumpy house with, with a hundred chickens on a really rough street. Every, every business around the house that we lived in was a bar. Wow. So there were shootings and stuff all the time. Wow. Right outside. So it was kind of a blessing. It was kind of a blessing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, I, I'm just trying to put myself in your parents' shoes though. Um, and like, could, and, and you could obviously do the same thing. You have six kids right now. Right. Yep. And just the thought of like, Hey guys, guess what? We're moving to Mexico. Yeah. Like, do you ever like process with your dad or have you ever talked to your dad about, about like, how did, like, what were you, were nervous? I mean, that just seems like a, such a huge deal for so many of us, you know, yeah. especially if we have that many kids. Yeah, I I have not. I don't recall processing those specific like adult questions with him. I think if I do bring it up, you know, it, he laughs about it. He's yeah, like, yeah, we were kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that was kind of the time, you know. My parents, my my dad and mom both grew up in Chicago. They got saved in the kind of post Jesus movement um, in Chicago. You know, heavily influenced by Keith Green mm-hmm. and you know all the songs that Keith Green was writing. That's when YWAM was kind of beginning and flourishing and so there was you know this idea that jesus you know there was a keith green song that you know when something like if jesus commands us to go it's the exception if you stay right and so that was just sort of this missionary culture where they just got sent there wasn't um a lot of training my parents didn't learn you know no spanish they just went down there and learned it on the fly yeah and so like in in our you know vine church mindset we um we really want to send people, but we want to be really thoughtful about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes when, as we've talked about, like maybe at that time in Christian culture, things were a little reckless, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? But, um, I mean, I would give it that label very cautiously, but, but maybe, maybe it was reckless. Maybe it wasn't. But at the same time, I feel like in our current day and age, maybe we've swung too far the other side of it's just like, I'm addicted to my comfort and the right. thought of doing something that's going to make me uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom is just met with resistance. Right. Yeah. There definitely was a, uh, a different level of faith element involved where, you know, there was a, a, a high desire to obey, um, a high trust in God's provision. And that sounds pretty biblical. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we it, it, reckless, I, I don't know. It, it, it seemed like there was, I think that the lesson I, I guess I learned in retrospect is that God, God honored their, my parents' attempt at faithfulness. Sure. Not even attempt at faithfulness. I think God honored their faithfulness. Sure. And th- there was, you know, ups, there were downs, there was some, I think there's still great fruit that came from it. Yep. You know, 
30 years later or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, it was definitely Well, I, I use the word reckless, not necessarily because, I mean, I can't say that about your parents because I don't know anything right. about them or this time in their life. But just the whole, from the mindset of, of how we're trying to set up a culture at, at the church is just like, we talk a lot about internal sense of call and external sense of call. Right. So it's like if my internal sense of call says, man, I'm supposed to move to Mexico and be a missionary and everybody around you and your leadership at the church is like, no, nah, we don't really see that for you. Like there is no external sense of call based on, well, your gifting doesn't really seem to line up there right. or you don't really seem like you, um, you know, have an aptitude for learning languages or whatever. You know, or I think about the guy that just runs off to seminary, like, oh, I feel called to be a pastor. And it's like, but is anybody else like, are you leading anybody? Right. Um, people respond to your leadership. Have you proven yourself? Da, 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 um, in certain aspects. But that being said, you know, I, I feel like there's a biblical category for um, God just takes the person who doesn't have anything going for him and just uses them. So it's yeah. like, I, you know. Yeah, I mean, both both my parents learned Spanish pretty well. You know, my dad, I think I don't remember how old he was. Now these would be great great questions to ask him, but learned Spanish in his thirties. Spent mm-hmm. a ton of time, you know, just in the mix in the community, and uh, developed relationships quickly mm-hmm. and high trusting relationships. I mean, there was fruit, and lots of baptisms, and you know, church plants and that kind of thing. I don't think we called it church planting back then, mm-hmm. um, but it was. Yeah, definitely opportunity to to discern between recklessness and and faithfulness. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's. I think it's just a good conversation for all of us to have, right? And, and think through like what does obedience and and man, I I just feel like for myself and for most people I know, like there's probably room to err more on the side of doing something that feels a little, I don't know, outside the box, and like yeah. I'm I'm on the edge of faith. You know, where like if God doesn't show up, we're sunk. Like that right. sounds like really biblical. <laughs> right. I mean, I think it, the the idea of giving up comfort, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, Midwestern middle class comfort looks like in the 80s compared to going down to Mexico and, and living an un, unpredictable life, I think was, I mean, I commend my parents for it. I mean, there was a lot of, there was a lot, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of danger. There was probably mm-hmm. a lot of fear. But I think just even pushing through that with the attempt to be faithful to build the kingdom, I respect. I know there was a lot of, a lot of challenges that came with it, but... Yep. Is there a part of you that wishes you raised your kids in a similar way today? Like that's, it, a good, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I've often... I've never really thought about that too much. I think having a cross-cultural experience and having an experience for you know with that's outside of what the, what the American norm is, I think would be valuable. I haven't looked back and, and wished that I had really done anything different, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think there would be a great value in having my kids spend more time in Mexico or Ecuador yeah, or different you know, cultures. Yeah, for sure. Can you think about how you are today as a grown man um, and being raised in a different culture do you see like threads that are connecting? Like here's how me from seven to 12 and a half, how that's affecting me to this day. Yeah. I I would say that my, I have a deep love for other cultures and other people. Mm -hmm. And I find myself drawn to, you know, people who haven't just, I mean, I certainly have a lot of affection, deep affection for people who've grown up in the United States and have not experienced other cultures as well. But I definitely find myself being drawn towards, 
people from other cultures. Mm-hmm. And and definitely I have a deep, deep affection for, you know, Latin Americans, but also Mexicans just in, you know, because it's, I feel like it's, they're my people, right, <laughs> you know? Right, and right. so walking in any Mexican restaurant here in town, I mean, I can instantly, I mean, I learned Spanish in the street, so my Spanish isn't eloquent. It's like sixth grade level street you know so like people who are well educated and uh they run circles around me and i probably they probably think i talk fairly simplistic mm-hmm. but in you know as far as like salt of the earth folks even here in madison like yes. i can win them over pretty quickly and i love that yeah <laughs> yeah and tony cannot give you all the great recommendations for um for the best restaurants yes of the uh Let- Latino flavor. Yes, anytime. So why did you guys move back? I think that's, I think it was probably, I think my parents were discerning the timing mm-hmm. of their time there. There was, that's probably a bigger conversation. Uh, I think that just the family dynamics too, you know, my, I had two older sisters and just raising teenage daughters in Mexico. There was some, you know, challenges I think that came there yeah. and, um, I mean, for this might be a good segue. I think fortuitously, I think my, I think God had His hand in that as well for the provision for my family as a whole. Looking back on it now, you kind of scratch your head, like, "Well, what happened? Why'd you guys move back?" But um, you know, m- once we moved back, and I think it was '92, within six months of us moving back from Mexico, I think it's six months, my dad had secured a job, you know, with healthcare and all this kind of stuff, and um, and my mom got was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. so you know when you ask the question about why'd you move back i feel like god had his hand in some of the provision for that for us to be able to be back here in the states so my mom could get care my dad could get health care and ultimately honestly have some provision with life insurance because my mom passed away pretty quickly yeah. so i feel like that was part of it i don't know what that was i know that's not what my parents were thinking when they moved back but it could have been part of the larger story that was at play yep you know. I want to talk about your mom's passing, but one of the questions about your Mexico experience. So coming back to the United States, I mean, you probably didn't have a ton of memories pre-Mexico, right. you know. Um, do you have memories of just kind of culture shock of like, man, I feel like a Mexican kid and now here I am in Wisconsin was that a hard transition or was it just I don't recall yeah normal? I mean I had really fi- I did have fond memories of the of the community and the friendships that we had prior to moving so you know even at an early age of 7 you know I, I did have lots of great memories of you know we had we had a really great homeschool community lots of really tight tight knit families that we were part of so I did have great memories there moving to Mexico and then coming back I, I'm sure there was some culture shock that I experienced but I don't I don't know that it was any different than like the culture shock that someone experiences who comes from like a small, you know, homeschool family then goes off to high school. You know, sure. like that was the biggest culture shock for me was coming back, finishing my eighth grade year and then going into public high school where there was a, you know, just the different culture of public right. high school versus missionary sure. kid. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So you guys moved back and within six months, your mom is diagnosed, um, how long was it be- between diagnosis and her passing? It went pretty quick. I, 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 clearly, she had you know cancer long Advanced before it was detected. Yeah. yeah, so I think she was like fifth degree or fifth stage. Whatever. Yeah. Um. So it was pretty quick. So November to March. Wow. Wow. And so, man, that must have been like a bomb went off in your family. Yeah, I mean that. It's funny when you think when you ask about like culture shock and coming back from Mexico. It's almost like I don't have a ton of memories between 
between coming back and then my mom getting cancer and passing away. You know, like when there's a crisis that hits, it almost becomes like that's the thing. Those are the memories that are amplified. And so those are the ones that I remember more and pretty poignantly. So, yeah, that was pretty disrupting to our to our family life. And, you know, my mom was pregnant with my sister when she got diagnosed. And so she gave birth to my sister, Danielle, um, in January and then passed away in March. Wow. So. So Danielle doesn't have any memories of no. her, her mom. No, she was two months old. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know that. So. Yeah, my mom was a beast. She, um, <laughs> she, uh, um, I mean, she gave birth naturally, you know, all of that. And she was on the mend, I guess. And then, you know, whatever, medical doctors would know more about this. But they decided to, like, amp up the radiation or whatever it was but she was doing i mean she walked around for you know a while um went to church and she yep. like spoke at church gave a testimony of god's faithfulness with you know danielle being born and i remember pointedly like my mom being down on all fours scrubbing the floor we're like mom what are you doing yeah. you know like, yeah um so she was yeah she was a tough woman she, she was a godly you, woman the way you describe her is just like um a lot of conviction, a lot of drive. Yeah. A lot like you. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, she, she was a, she was a hard worker. She definitely was a disciplinarian in our home. I mean, my dad definitely administered discipline and was, but my mom kind of, she was the one who kind of kept us in line. Yeah. You know? Yep. So did, did you guys know how serious it was? Like, did, did they ever like sit you down and go, look, mom only had like mom only has a month to live or like do you guys have conversations like that as a family at all i don't it's so funny i don't recall i mean i definitely remember there being like moments where we're all kind of huddled around trying to figure stuff out but i don't know do you remember her being like really sick yeah yeah okay i do and i I don't have any regrets about any of that because i feel like i was blessed and fortunate to to have i was there at the hospital when she passed okay so i was working this i was working my first job i ever had was uh I was working at a grocery store stocking shelves. I remember having to make an arrangement with my buddy Tony Ola to come and <laughs> work my shift so I could go to the hospital. Oh my gosh. And so fortunately I was there with dear friends when she passed. So I feel I take that as like a blessing that I was able to be there when she passed. But you don't really remember much of her processing like mom's not going to be around. Like no. That, those kind of conversations never happened. I mean, I, the only memory I have of that uh, was that I, you know, my dad kind of just lived at the hospital, so mm-hmm. we were kind of split up amongst other families and stuff. Gotcha. So I was at somebody else's house, and they kind of came in. They're like, hey, your mom's probably not going to make it. We probably need to get you down there in the next couple of days. That's the only thing I remember. Wow. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's it's horrible. I mean, my dad passed away from cancer um, just over five years ago, and yeah, it's it's just, it's the worst. So yeah. stressful. But Yeah. Um. What about your dad? I mean, I can't. So at this time, you've got seven kids. Yeah. And he's got. No. Uh, eight. Eight kids. Yeah. Danielle's the youngest. Danielle and then Bethany. Right. Yep. Michael okay. was born. Or Bethany was born in Mexico. Okay. So your wife dies. Yeah. And you have eight kids. Yeah. I mean, that. I, I mean, I've got four. Eight and kids I, and one of them's a two-month-old. Right. Like. It's brutal. What do you remember about that? I mean, that's just like an unthinkable situation. I remember there being 
you know, over, I don't know how long it was, but we were getting meals brought to us for lunch and for dinner. And, you know, we have your dad like wasn't he just a zombie of grief, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, again, these are all great questions I should be asking him. But <laughs> we I should invite him. Next I don't time. know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how he, you know, did it. I think in God and God provided for my dad in a way. I mean, he, you know, so he's remarried. Yeah. To MJ, Mary Jane, who was a, a single gal who had never married, and so mm-hmm. she married my dad. I, and I, the timelines are all lost on me. Maybe within a year or two. Okay. You know, so he provided in that way. But I mean, I, MJ, if you ever listen to this, I know we weren't the kindest to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it was yeah. I mean, our family is a you know a wild a wild emotional bunch of sure. you know passion and conviction and yep. strong opinions. So there was lots of <laughs> Irish and Italian, right? Irish Italian, yeah, passionate genes. Yep, yep. Wow. So, but I think I do remember. Um, and I'm not trying to look at this through rose-colored glasses. I do remember feeling the comfort of the community of the church body at the time. So just some great, great families that loved us dearly and I think really shepherded all of our hearts, I think. I mean, I look back on it, I feel like my heart was shaped well by the families that were around us. You know, we were taken care of, you know, physically and just emotionally, I, th- I think, you know. Yeah. I, I'm sure if you talk to my siblings, they might have a different opinion of how their emotional how their emotional um, grief or processing was, but I felt like um, I felt blessed that there was people in my life that were kind of present in that. What advice would you give to the Vine Church for walking with people that are that maybe go through a similar type thing as you had to go through when you were 12, no, 13, 14? 14, when yeah. You were 14 when your mom died. Like, what are the... What are the most important things to remember? Yeah, I think really don't try to explain anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there were some really well-intended people, which I say well-intended knowing that I believe that they were well-intended, but they were pretty hurtful in there. You know, I mean, they went to the whole like, well, you guys didn't have enough faith. If you would have had enough faith, your mind would have been healed, you know, and like really? that's some stones to be able to like say that after someone had passed. So that was pretty hurtful to, I think, a number of people in my family. Um, I think I gave me grace to not take that battle on, but that certainly would be not what you would ever want to say, but I think, or try to explain things. I mm-hmm. think there's, and, and questions certainly don't help either, you know? Um, How you doing? How can we help? You know, like, I don't know, just show up and be present or have the discernment to know when you should leave, mm-hmm. you know? And it's it's a nuanced answer, you right. know? But um, and make good meals. If I can say one thing, like, I mean, I'm a food guy, but like make good meals. I remember one time we had, you know, we had this long list of people who were bringing us meals for a year. And I remember one day I went to the door to get the meal that was brought to us. And it was this woman who I had no idea who she was with a Ziploc bag with some terrible looking gross like frozen beef stroganoff whatever and it was like she and she literally said it was my day to bring you guys a meal you know and i was like oh boy so don't do that like make a really nice meal (laughs) yes no that's good man like um i think i want to when i think about this issue oftentimes i just think about job and and you see job is just in the the pinnacle of human suffering right you know and his friends show up and they're just silent for yeah. a, a seven days. Yeah. 
So what that means is they are present. They're just present. No yeah. words. No questions. And, and, and no then explanations. they start opening their mouth and things get dicey. Right. You know? Right. And I think there's a lot to learn in that. Yeah. You know, being present. Um, it seems to me that there's, and this is a little bit challenging to be able to provide comfort for people who are suffering because... I think if you've suffered to any degree, like the person who you're trying to comfort, they can feel that. Mm-hmm. Because if you've suffered, you can mourn well. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't suffered, um, it's it, you can empathize, you can try to have compassion, and God can certainly give you like a Holy Spirit infusion of, of his ability to mourn. But certainly I think those who've suffered can mourn more more readily than those who haven't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's almost like this. I, I talked to another friend of mine. It's almost like there's this club, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, hey, welcome to the club. Now you get to be present with those who have who are suffering. Right. You know? And suffering isn't something that, you know, certainly people have suffered far more than I have and mm-hmm. some more, far more than we have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, a terrible, terrible things that happen to people all the time. But the ability to kind of go through pain and, and suffering and, and not have your heart be hardened I think allows you then to be able to be present and with people who are suffering. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Yeah. It's presence versus words and service, you know, I think is really important too. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Sir, yeah. Presence versus words. I would say service versus questions. Yeah. You know, the, um, Steve more recently, a dear friend of mine, you know, suffered tragic loss and, it's so many people asking him how they can help. And he's like, you can help me actually by trying to figure out a way to have people stop asking me how they can help me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought pretty insightful, you know? Yeah, it is insightful because that question, when someone is suffering so deeply, like your friend who recently lost a teenage son, um, you at 14 losing their mom, like that's, it's the analogy I use all the time is like, that's a, that's a, Everybody wears a backpack in life mm-hmm. and you just carry around three or four books. That's normal weight of being a human being and carrying the, the human backpack. And then something horrible like that happens and it's like adding two 50 pound dumbbells. Right. And so you're just exhausted because right. it just existing with the extra 50 pound right. dumbbells just makes you so tired and it's mental fatigue right. as well. And so when somebody says to you, how can I help? It's like... I. I barely have enough brain bandwidth to just to function. function in life. Yeah, right. And so it's almost like it feels presumptuous yeah. maybe to be like, hey, man, just so you know, um, I'm going to come mow your, mow your lawn. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Or don't, or don't, don't even, even ask. Say anything. Just show up and mow it. Yeah. I think that's where I think the depth of relationship dictates the, the disposition of mourning. Right. Right. And so I think knowing that, you know, and just showing up leaving stuff and and leaving yeah like you don't even need to be present you know unless they invite you in right right like hey if if the depth of relationship allows for the invitation to be present fantastic Mm -hmm. you know but sometimes people just need their lawn mowed their oil changed their kids picked up kitchen cleaned whatever yeah their their cupboards stocked you know whatever yeah it's so good i feel like this is a people that are grieving I mean, it just breaks my heart that, that people said those things to your family when you were younger about right. you, you know not having enough faith. And I feel like the church should be a counterculture to that, where we walk with people really, really well, because our Savior was a man of sorrows, right. acquainted with grief. And we have Bible texts, weep with those who weep. Right. And, and that can be a way that we can be such a light 
Because when somebody dies, like your mom, lots of unbelievers are watching. Right. You know what I mean? And when your friend's son just died last year, um, the whole city and state, you know, it was on the news. Right. You know, everybody's right. watching. Right. And so, man, how how important for the church to be a light city on a hill that, right. you know, we we know how to walk with people that are grieving. You know, we're never going to do it perfectly. Right. But man, I think this. Some, yeah, sometimes the grieving, or sometimes the the attempt to mourn, ends up becoming more about the person trying to administer help than it is about the person who needs the relief. Yeah, you know. And so I think just check your heart on that. You know, like, is this? Are the questions I'm asking are they for my, my, you know, more you know, consoling my own heart, or is it about the other person? And I think that's the great thing about all of this is that. You know, we, we, we look at Jesus, he was a man of sorrow, right? Mm-hmm. But he was so others focused. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, you know? And so if we have that mindset of how we can operate in a disposition of serving, and sometimes serving means doing nothing, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes the most kind thing you can, not always, but sometimes the most kind thing you can do is just, man, I'm just going to let you ride this out, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I'm going to send you aff- aff- affirmative love. Mm-hmm. I love you and I'm thinking about you and I'm yeah. praying for you. I'm for you. I'm yep. for you. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, so. What do you remember about your own grief? Like, because um, 14 years old. Yeah. No mom. Yep. Like, what do you remember about your grief? I remember that it came in waves. I remember, um, I remember that I think I had delayed grieving. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I just buckled down, you know? You got to work? Well, I just kind of, you know... <laughs> Again, man, it, my my siblings and family would probably have a different perspective of this, but I think, you know, uh, two older sisters and then me and then another younger brother and so on and so forth. There's there were some youngsters who were kind of need you know need of care, and I think it, in those you know fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old, I don't know. I just I just remember thinking, this is really painful, and I don't understand it, but we got to keep moving, mm-hmm. like we got to keep. Like we got, we're going to keep moving along, you know? And so I took pride, pride, I think, in, in working hard. I think I took pride in I trying to create order in my own home, in my own room, mm-hmm. you know, um, I jumped into sports and stuff like that. It wasn't really, into, I mean, I was deeply emotional. I always have been, but I think, um, so Kirsten and I connected at a young age. I know I've known her since I was 14. Oh, I was known her since I was 15. Your wife. Yeah. My wife. Yep. So, um, she and I processed a lot together. I didn't really realize that we were kind of talking about the deep soul stuff that we are. But I remember right before we got married, um, I remember having like a deep, almost like, like a, there, it was on an outreach actually. And this is, this is like, when you asked me what my memories of mourning, it wasn't until I was 18 until I almost had like this like really healing, cleansing moment of like deep, deep prayer and weeping Hmm. where um i don't know if you've ever experienced this but where there's like a healing that happens in your soul through just like a deep deep weeping and it's like a touch of the holy spirit in a way that you can't really explain otherwise Mm -hmm. i mean it was for like a couple of hours yeah with other people present and so that i felt like um in part because kirsten was there with me i felt like that was a moment that we shared but like god it's almost like he I don't even, I can't explain it. People who, you know, know more about these things um, cognitively could maybe explain it better. But I remember that being like the my first memory of it's like, like the damn broke. Yep. Yep. And like I was kind of holding it in, yep. trying to stay strong and all this kind of stuff. And then just things kind of released. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yep. 
And then there was another moment like that right before I got married. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, I think in large part that might be part of the reason this is not like prescriptive by any means, but I think that was part of the reason I think I, I was ready to be married young. I got married at 20 and Kirsten was 21. And I think we had a, you know, like I was just ready to to not mess around with like silly dating. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I think I just, I think I was forced to just grow up quick. Yes. You yeah, know, and there might that. be a hint of arrogance in that when I say that. I don't intend that to be, but I think it was just kind of like catapulted from adolescence to like Well, that's adulthood. what suffering does, right? Right. It, right. it, it forces you to to um to grow right or it it could you know turn your heart hard right sometimes and it can lead people down a destructive path right you know but i i get the impression you were in a really good community yeah yeah your, your church good. community and your youth group community and yeah so let's talk about kirsten yeah um because i know you have a, a great story about how you guys kind of got headed in the direction of marriage in what se- <laughs> at the at the at the super romantic Walmart deli oh. or something? <laughs> well, it's funny because um, Kirsten was always a good friend of mine in high school. She was closer friends with my older sisters, but she, um, you know, she was just around like that. Like you mentioned, that our, our youth group experience was fantastic. There was a great community, gifted leaders who were super pastoral, and a lot of my really close dear friends today are from that community. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kirsten was one of them. So. We would go on outreaches together. We would be just like kids in high school. And then later we were kids, kind of like the student leaders who would kind of help run the outreaches and student, you know, and it was like, you know, urban ministry or ministry in Mexico. So we were really close and she was kind of close to me at like really um, pivotal ports in my life. And so I remember one day after church, I needed to talk to her. And this was after my dad had gotten remarried and there was all sorts of drama with my family and all that kind of stuff about my dad getting remarried and all all the emotions with that. But, um, so she and I weren't dating. Um, I think she had recently come out of a relationship, um, or was maybe heading into one. I don't remember the details, but, um, I, 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 I said I needed to talk to her. And so after church, we went to the, we went across the street to Walmart and sat in the booth at the Walmart (laughs) deli with like the slushy machine and the hot dogs turning and the cotton candy, you know, and I'm eight, I think I'm 18 years old at this point. And I just needed someone to process this with. And so the funny part is, is Kirsten's like, what's going on? You know, like, what do you need to talk about? And I'm like, well, here's the deal. You know, um, Danielle just, Danielle's getting kicked off the donkey. And she's like, what? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, Danielle's getting kicked off the donkey. She goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I go, MJ's pregnant. <laughs> and this might be a culture. I've never heard that phrase before. Well, that's because it has no bearing in the United States. It was like a complete Mexican saying, gotcha. which I thought was a thing here. But, <laughs> you know, it means like when your mom's pregnant, the youngest kid in the family is there's no longer room on the donkey for the family to all ride. And so like... The you know the yeah, next kid like, I, get it, right, I didn't yeah. know that until I was explaining it years later and I'm like that's funny and she's like okay you know <laughs> so that was the that was kind of how the whole conversation started was I was yep. like hey I got to talk to you I got to process some of this intense stuff yes you know? and so that proceeded to kind of you know the conversation went a couple different directions and we ended up talking about relationships and some of the relational drama that maybe some girls maybe I was pursuing or had feelings for and some guy that she was again I can't remember if she was coming out of a relationship but some silly high school stuff and so I remember just looking across the table and just saying you know what like I've always had a good time with you I feel like I don't understand why we can't just have why marriage doesn't just look like this where I just go to you because I trust you and you trust me and I like you 
And, and Kirsten's just kind of like, uh-huh. And I'm like, why don't we just, I got an idea. <laughs> she goes, okay. And I'm like, if neither one of us are married in two years, why don't we just get married to each other? And Kirsten goes, okay, that sounds good. And I looked at her kind of like, I'm actually not joking anymore. Like, I'm being serious. Like, I can marry you. And she's like, I'm not joking either. And I go, for real? She goes, yeah. And I go, let's shake on it. <laughs> so we shake hands with the Slurpee in the background, you know, or the slushy machine, whatever right, it is, exactly. you know. And so um, and I think she proceeded to continue in this relationship that, you know, again, silly high school relationship. And, and that ended. And, and then... Um, so you guys just kind of went your separate ways. We just went our separate ways. Like we probably had like another conversation after that around just friendship, but we weren't like, great, now we're going to be dating. But did you guys hang out with each other in like the same friend group? Kind of. She was a little bit older than me and cooler than me. So she hung out with like the, the older, cooler crowd and I was kind of like relegated to like the wanting to be. <laughs> the JV. I was on the JV squad. She was on varsity. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it was just, you know, because when you're, she was two two grades ahead of me. Gotcha. So when you're in high yeah, school, yeah. that's a, that's a that's large a gap. Yep, yep. And so I don't think, we, neither one of us were, we didn't think about it much. We just, we just proceeded to go from there and she was a trusted friend and then, you know, uh, things transpired uh, with another relationship that I was in and Kirsten was in and then we just ended up coming back around again and our circles crossed and we were in a school of ministry together um, at the church, which is basically like a small like missionary training um, at our church led by one of the pastors and we just kind of started growing in friendship and one thing led to another. And one thing led to another and you have six kids. Now we have six kids, yeah. Yeah. yeah we're going on, you know, we're coming up on uh, 19 years in November. Yes. Yes. So... Yeah. so Six kids. I, I love to ask this kind of a question. So you got what, seventeen and a half? Eight, yep. Michael's seventeen and a half. Yep. And Iris is four and five. 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 Yep. Yep. Five. That's right. So you've been at this parenting gig for seventeen and a half years. Yeah. Um, we got a lot of young families at yeah. our church. If you could go back and talk to your twenty three year old self about parenting, what would you say? Man, that's a good question. What would you tell twenty-three-year-old um, Tony? I would say, chill out, just relax, mm -hmm. slow down. Um, Why did you need to chill out and relax and slow well, down? Well, I think that you know we, I think early on, I don't, I think I remember like the early years of our marriage really fondly. We had some stuff we had to work through, and I think I remember early parenting years being fine too. But I think I just kind of expected a lot of of my kids at a young age and was probably, I mean, this is still true now, um, but I was just kind of too hard on them, mm -hmm. you know? And so I could have just enjoyed the moment more, enjoyed messing around, like the, the, the slow bike rides, the slow walks, all that kind of stuff, making more time for that than, and not just being fat, you know, fast paced. Mm -hmm. So... I haven't really thought about it before until you asked that, but yeah, that would probably be, you know. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I, I think about that too because we have sons that are the same age. And um, if I were to answer that to myself, I, I, I resonate with that, like chill out. It's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. um, Parenting's hard though. It's like mm -hmm. what's more valuable than these little creatures that, right. you're, that you've been entrusted with, you know what yeah. I mean? So there's so, especially that first one, you're so wound up because you feel the weight of the responsibility, I think. Yeah. You know, yeah, Lot, lots of it's funny. I was just telling, talking to a friend of mine today who's, you know, 
10 years younger than me and he's got two toddlers who are, I think, three and one. And just, you know, everyone's at home because he's working from home and having a hard time, you know, and just can't get anything done. And I was just like, man, I, dude, I'm, I'm the guy who's saying this, but it's super cliche. But these days will, the, the days are long, but the years go fast, man. Yep. That's just, the, yep. it's the truth. Yep. It's the truth, you know. So chill out. Yeah, I've got one that's going to be able to vote yeah. in the next election. I mean, that's dizzying. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. Grown man in my house. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it seems like we just moved to Madison and yeah, I was blinking. We just moved to Madison 10 years ago. You know, right. It's wild. I still think of myself as like, you know, early 20s. Right. <laughs> oh, I know, me too. Until I get up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, right. So um, yeah. uh, what was I going to say? Um. I don't remember. So you uh, have six kids, and what was I going to say? I was going to ask you the million-dollar question. I'll come back to it. Um, so you got into you, – you had to figure out how to how to raise a family. You know, you got My- Michael when you were 23, right? Yep. And so um, you started being a businessman, right? Yep. And eventually you got into real estate. Yep. So tell us, like um, – what what were those early days of real estate like? <clears throat> well, again, we the I don't know what I was doing. You know, we I, I did back. Dude, I, I thought of it. Sorry, well, can we okay, go back? Go back. Yeah, you can edit Tell it out us, later. Yeah, yeah, but we won't. Um, <laughs> long we're, form, we're raw. Yeah, long form. We're raw, <laughs> dude. You got to tell us the story about when because you just told me this story a few days ago because it's awesome about when um, you had a surprise when you showed up at the basketball game. Um, Surprise! The basketball game, um, where you had a stowaway. Oh, oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so we were. Oh, oh my, this is great parenting. I think um, <laughs> it's a great story about parenting. So I was, we were living actually not far away. We're sitting here on the right off the Beltline. I'm looking at the belt right now, but we were living on on Moreland Road when we first moved here, Moreland and Rimrock. And I was going to Harbor Athletic to play basketball with a friend of mine, and um, left the house. Got to the gym. On the way, Kirsten called me and asked me if I knew where Michael was. How Michael, old is he at the time? I can't remember. So we've Four been in five. the last 10. He's six or seven at the most. Probably yeah. six. Yeah. So Kirsten called me and asked me where Michael was. And I said I didn't know where he was. You know. So then I got to uh, Harbor, which is in Middleton, um, on Century and Allen. So a distance from our house that mm-hmm. we required me driving on the belt line. Yeah. And so I, I stopped the car and uh Michael pops his head out of the back. He like dropped like the armrest down and stuck his head out. He was he had stowed away in the trunk because uh, he wanted to go with to the gym. So he just went out before me and hopped in the trunk and just closed it. <laughs> so he sat I drove on the belt line probably going seventy miles an hour. <laughs> when he popped it open I almost Killed him. I was like so freaked out. I was like, "What are you doing?" So he pops his head out. He the pops armrest. his head like, out. Hey, the yeah, hey, Dad, here I am. I'm like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, <laughs> freaked out, man. I, I I can't remember. I have to go back and check. But I I, I don't know if Kirsten had called the cops or not. But there was you know, big. Everyone's looking around, and it was crazy. And you've got your six year old in the trunk of your car. In the trunk. I'm like, Michael, you could have died. You know, he was, you know. Pretty emotional because I yelled at him pretty hard because I was so freaked out. And yes, then, but then I continued to play basketball. Of course, so I, <laughs> that's a great parenting story. So on to business. You, you're yeah. you're in real estate, and um, I want to just think about business to the glory of God. Yeah. And so if I just ask you that, 
what does it mean for you to do real estate as a businessman? You know, you have your own team, you, you own your own business in a sense. Yeah. Um, what does it mean to you to like do business to the glory of God? Well, I think the, um, I've learned a lot over the years from making, I've been coming up on 14 years in the business now. Um, and I think I've learned that you're primarily a servant, right? So you're here to serve people. I, I serve two people. I serve my customers and I serve my team. And there's a lot, there's just, um, taking excellence in, in my work in in having excellence in my team, serving people well, treating people. I mean, all these silly things, treating people the way they want to be treated. Um, if I ever make a mistake, the amount of things I've paid for in the, over the years, the amount of wine coolers and, um, oh, that wasn't in the contract. We thought it was going to be there. Okay, I'll, whatever. Wine coolers? Yeah, I mean, this is a real example of like, you know, it wasn't written in the contract. Seller, buyer thought it was. Seller didn't think it was. And so they're going to take it with. And it was like $2,500 mistake in my second year. Oh, business. I was thinking like. No, not wine coolers. Like the thing, like, <laughs> like a wine drink. chiller. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. a, I gotcha. Yeah, or water softeners or windows or, gotcha. you know, just like the amount of things that have just like, oh, I, you know, if I made a mistake or if I didn't even make a mistake, sometimes just the idea of like, Taking responsibility for things that aren't even your fault. Yep. Just making things, making the, making sure that the customer has an experience that is positive, and, and it can be a stressful mm-hmm. situation where people are, you know, emotional about this financial decision they're making. It's likely the biggest decision financially that that they'll make, and mm-hmm. um, not not holding that lightly, not taking that lightly. But also, I say this all the time to my believing friends and you know people outside the church all the time. Like we, I just. I take what I take the process of selling your home or helping you find a home seriously, but I just don't take myself that seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, business people, realtors, we can all, you know, get an ego and feel like we're we are entitled to certain things and we deserve all this stuff, you know, and just not taking myself very seriously, but taking the process and the customer's experience really seriously. Yeah. Um, and I don't lead with a lot of language around my beliefs and faith and Christianity. That's not something that's not on our website. There's not a lot of social media stuff about that really at all. Um, I, I would rather have it be where people, you know, especially in Madison, I'd rather have people find out after the fact that they're like, oh, you were like, you were, you're one of those Bible thumping Jesus guys. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? And hopefully you still had a good experience. Hopefully I wasn't like leading with my political views and making you feel like you were, a diminished, you know, devalued, whatever, mm-hmm. because of my beliefs and your disposition. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to love people, get to know people, um, and just do, yeah, I essentially just treat people how I would, I would hope to be treated. Yeah. I, because I know you so well, um, I know that, like, generosity is something that you, I think you have the gift of generosity, but that's something that I think people... Um, would really sense as they come into contact with you in your business? Is that something that you feel like has just, it, like, is that um, nature or nurture? I mean, is that something you just always kind of had? Or is that something that you have really um, been, have to be thoughtful about? Like, I want to structure my business um, with generosity at the forefront. Yeah. Or does it just kind of come out naturally? I think it's, I think, honestly, I think it's both. When you talk about nature and nurture, I think, um, again, back to like treating people with dignity, mm-hmm. right. And wanting to have people have a good experience or, um, b- holding loosely that, which I've been entrusted with financially, mm-hmm. not like flippantly or irresponsibly, but just knowing that like, this could all be gone in a moment, you know, or growing up with like the, the humility that we li- that the humble 
living situations that we had as a kid, like, you know, I never, like, we were broke. I never knew that. I had a great life. Yep. I had a great, you know, we ate great meals and I, you know, so I never went to bed cold or hungry. No, I did it. And so, you know, in, in, in this, in this environment where, um, the real estate market has been good and, um, by God's grace, you know, businesses flourished. I, I, I don't know. I think it, it, it's fun. You know, if you, I, I enjoy, I, I have a few memories of people paying for meals for me a few times a few years ago and just, just really being impacted by that. Like mm. the thought, like the joy that that dude had paying for my meal being like, man, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, if I ever get the opportunity to, I want to do that. You know? So yep. I think it's, a, I think it's both. I think you grow in it. And the, the temptation often I think will be to, it's easy to talk about generosity when times are good, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, I want to continue to, I think it is a gift. I think it's a muscle you can work out. You know, you can get stronger in. Where know? have you seen your faith tested as a, as a businessman? Um, it's a good question. Uh, well, I mean, definitely there's the, 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 the nature of the real estate business is that in Wisconsin, it's fairly cyclical. I mean, mm. this is like a broad answer, but there's, there's, there's seasons of plenty and then there's a long drought, you know? Right. And so just trusting that, the that God will be faithful as he has been and just so that is is faith, for me the easiest thing is just like provision you know yeah. we're gonna have you know enough and I mean I've had a number of times where I've been really stressed out where there's you know because of financial decisions I've made that have really affected me where we didn't have much you know yeah. and so sweating that out um that's probably the the broadest answer. so I I know we've talked about this before like you know, a decade or so ago, the financial sky was falling a little bit for you. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? What you learned? Yeah. So I, this is a, I'll try to make this condensed, but we, we had moved to Madison in 2006. The, the guy that I worked for, Dan Spranzi, good, dear, dear friend of mine, he and I owned a roofing company previously in the West Bend, Milwaukee area. So I had shifted from roofing to, I got into life insurance sales and I came down, um, to talk with Dan and kind of give you the backstory beforehand to give Dan, you know, I hope to sell him life insurance. And while I was here, I drove from West Bend to Madison. I met Dan at Marigold downtown, um, an hour and a half to try to get this life insurance policy signed. And he recruited me there to come move to Madison. Cause he asked me if I liked what I was doing and I hated it. Mm-hmm. And so because of my background in, um, Mexico and speaking Spanish, he thought that I could serve the Latino community well. And a friend of his was really well connected to the Latino community. And so the idea was for me to move here, be part of Dan's team and serve the Latino community. So we moved here in 2006. Um, we, we, I had everything go wrong before we moved here. And so I had a big life insurance case that was supposed to pay out and it didn't. And then I had some housing set up that was supposed to be, you know, for free for a while and it didn't, didn't work out. And then um, we were, this is the, the, the beginning of my financial wisdom was that we were too poor to buy, we were, we couldn't afford rent. So we worked this deal out with this stupid loan and we bought a half duplex that we borrowed like 120% of the value of the duplex, wow. half duplex, and then cashed that out and lived on a portion of the, of the cash. Right. So it was like the silliest thing you could have ever done. And so I didn't know a soul in the city. 
um, was going to pursue the Latino community. And that worked for like the first six months. And then the mortgage meltdown happened. And thankfully, all those more, all those programs that were really terrible programs that were just really taking advantage this of. This is still around 2008. 2008, yep. yeah. So all those programs went away. Um, and so I kind of had to reinvent myself and did well for like another year. Um, but we ended up renting out the place that we lived in. I borrowed money from my dad so I could buy the house that we live in now. Really, really got over leveraged on debt. And then I had... Um, you know, like a little hiccup and was just starting to get behind on stuff. And so um, the story kind of you're referencing was I had pursued a mentor. There was a guy that I was introduced to in Milwaukee who was a realtor, who's a godly man, and he had coached some young agents. And um, I reached out to him to ask him if I could pay him to coach me because I needed to make more money. And so he agreed that he would coach me for $500 a month. And I would need, if he would take me on as a customer and like a coaching client, I would need to come to his office in Brookfield. Uh, Kirsten would need to come with me. I would need to bring two years of tax returns and all my debt obligations and all my savings, personal, credit card, otherwise. Just full Just disclosure. Just full on financial disclosure, like yep. nothing hidden. Yep. And I didn't think anything of it. I'm like, all right, whatever. If this is what he needs to do, that's fine. You know? So when I, I it's one of the more poignant memories I have in my life. So I don't know what year this was in. It must have been 2000. We already live in our house. It must have been 2011 or 12 or something like that. So we, um, oh, I mean, there was also, yeah, there's a whole other story, but we were involved in, in, in ministry and at the time, and I was running a youth group and periodically preaching on Sunday morning, and I was an elder at a church, and um, different conversation for a different day, but so I had my hands full, right? Yes. And so- Stressed out. Stressed out, and um, we moved into this house. Johnny was born. And two weeks later, I took a team on a short-term mission trip, you know, and tried to run this business. So um, we, so anyways, fast forward probably two, three years later, I'm in this guy's office and he looks at me and he's like, where's your tax return for this year? I'm like, I don't have it yet. He's like, oh, you, you haven't filed your taxes yet? I'm like, oh, no. He goes, so you owe some back taxes? I go, yeah. He goes, so you're filing an extension? I said, yeah. He's like, yeah, you're just like every other realtor who doesn't know how to manage their money and doesn't know how to pay their taxes. I'm like, yep, that's where I am. He's like, and you you borrowed some money from your dad to buy the house that you live. Is your dad a wealthy man? I go, no, he's not. He's like, what does he do for them? I'm like, he's a pastor. Your dad's a pastor, huh? So wealthy pastor? I'm like, nope. And everything, he's like, so I don't see you have much savings here. What was your plan to be able to pay for your taxes? I'm like, man, that's why I'm here. You know, like, <laughs> he's dressing you down. <laughs> oh my gosh. So he then showed me, um, he actually showed me a list of the income he had earned over the past 15 years and the value and the houses that he bought. And he, and, you know, basically his income exceeded whatever his house purchase was. You know, he'd make like $150,000 and he bought a house for a hundred. Like the house he gotcha. was living in was only worth a hundred. Right. Gotcha. And so he's like, here's the trajectory that you should be on. Right. And your income's here and you bought this house and, um, you can't, you owe your dad, you have credit cards you know, and he looks at me and he goes, I'll never forget this. He goes, you have not stewarded your family's finances well. And before I do anything to help you, you need to repent mm. for how you have handled your family's finances. And I just crack. Kirsten's sitting right next to me and I just start weeping. <laughs> awesome. Like, that is like, awesome. And he's just. And you'll never forget that. I will not. And I owe him a ton of gratitude. I just, he, I, and so he, um. He's like, you can't, I brought a check with me. Mm -hmm. He's like, you can't, he's like, what am I going to do, cash this? You know? <laughs> he's like, you can't pay for this. He goes, here's what we're going to do. He's like, I want to help you. I care a ton about you. Yeah. He's Beautiful. like, he's like, um, I was thinking about getting a job at UPS to go in at like four in the morning. Yeah. And I've had another, you know, 
Um, You're going to lay some things on the line. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, listen, here's the deal. He's like, I will coach you. You're going to check in with me. He's like, here's the things you need to do. He's like, you need to watch this Dave Ramsey DVD. You need to read this Dave Ramsey book. You need to check in with me every single week. You need to tell me what your goals are. You need to tell me what you plan to accomplish. And you need to tell me what you accomplished the previous week. Mm -hmm. All these volunteer things, you need to be done with all of them. Um, you can't commit to anything else unless you ask for my permission first. You can't spend a dime without asking me first. Um, anything, anything. And you're going to start writing checks to your dad and to the IRS, like right now. So that, I mean, that sounds pretty intense. It was unbelievably but, intense. Right. But super humbling. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the thought of like saying that to another grown man. <laughs> But at the same time, my, my perspective is like what you were doing wasn't working. No, like right. it, like you were listening to yourself. Right, this isn't working. So it stands to reason that I might need to submit to somebody else and right. do exactly as they say, who has a track trajectory of success, of success, yeah, financially. Yeah. Yep. So it, like it makes sense that he would say that. Yeah. But it's kind of a gutsy statement. Oh, it was so intense. It was the most. It was probably. But that changed the your most, life, right? It changed my life. You know, I do, I owe Dan Bunch an incredible amount of gratitude. Yeah. And so I and he stuck. He stayed true to his word. So I did all these things. I would check in with him every week, and he'd go for weeks without responding to me. Hmm. I just silently would send it in, and I would miss a week, and he'd be like, "What happened? Why didn't you send it?" He's like, "I was getting worried about you. Why didn't you send in mm. your your?" progress report you yeah, know yeah he also had me do this i don't know if i ever told you this. he also had me do this exercise where i still have it to this day where he charted out the significant milestones in my life leading up to where i was and then continuing the trajectory going outward right so if there's a graph right mm -hmm. and it shows where we were and where we we're going to go and he had like like financial milestones just life milestones okay you know, because he had the same thing. He's like, I got saved in 1972. I yep. met Vicky at this date. I did this thing. You know what I mean? I bought my house at this date. I was working for this person at this point. I was earning this much at this point. You know, yep. all that kind of thing. So he had us map that out. And I'd never seen anybody. I'd never done that. And so I had like this vision to get out of debt and a mm -hmm. goal to get out of debt. And when we're going to have kids and if we're going to stay in the house that we're at. And, all, you know, what our life is going to look like. So that was a really great like kind of guiding visual for me mm -hmm. you know and i remember the email he sent me right after we had met was you know i know i came on strong and i hit you with both barrels because i didn't want you to get confused that you were going to be okay continuing the path you were on you know <laughs> i love it i love it and so we did you know and what it led to was a deeper humbling you know mm -hmm. We tried to sell our, we were already living in our house now and we had the place that we lived in rented out and I was going, neg it was negative cash flow every month by about 200 bucks. And so we tried to sell that as a short sale. I just submitted completely to him. Mm -hmm. um, I, whether you agree with this or not, like at the end of the day, I ended up just letting it go to foreclosure. Mm -hmm. um, and that was deeply humbling because I'm in this business, in this town, in mm -hmm. small real estate community and let the whole thing go and... I remember, I don't know how long, it, it takes a while. So this might have been like six years ago or something like that, or seven. But I remember like getting all these things from the attorney's offices about this thing, about being behind and all right. this stuff. And then finally, they have like a private investigator show up at your house with the lawsuit, with like the, the court you paperwork. Papers. You get served papers yeah. from the court. And um, he showed up on the day after Thanksgiving with my in-laws in, um, at our house. More humbling. Oh, it was the worst. The worst. But yeah, like your in-laws are thinking, 
you're taking care of my daughter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're getting served papers. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? The great thing about all of it is that, like, like I mentioned before about suffering. Like, yeah. I got no. I was pretty arrogant before that. I was mm. financially responsible and didn't have any debt, and I was really kind of like fiscally conservative as far as being frugal to the point of being cheap and probably annoying about it. Sure. You know. Sure. Um, and that just got burned out of me. Yep. You know, it's such a great story though of like when you get in trouble, you get in deep. Yeah. To humble yourself and ask for help. Yeah. And then do as you're told. Yeah. Now that I mean that of course if you're going to the wrong person, right. you don't want to do as you're told. But yep. this guy had a track record that he was trustworthy. Yeah. And I just I just love that. I think that's a beautiful model of like not resisting yeah. the, the 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 take eating the humble pie. Yeah. You know, cuz so much of us wants to be like, well, I'm I'm really upside down here. But I'll just figure it out on my own. Yeah. And it's like, well... I had a path I was going down that wasn't great. And so the the worst thing that came out of all of it was that like my pride was hit. That was mm-hmm. really it. I mean, mm-hmm. financially, for the foreclosure wiped out all this debt. It seems almost silly that the system allows for that, but it did. And I was, you know... It helps me with customers because like, it seems like everyone's got some dark skeletons in their closet that they're like, don't want to talk about. I'm like, hey, can I talk about mine? Yep. Want me to tell you what happened to me? Yep. You know what yep. I mean? It's a great <laughs> so, testimony. Yeah. And yeah. I'm so, yeah, super, super thankful to to Dan. And I still talk to him all the time. Or not, yeah. uh, at least once a year, I go to his office and talk to his whole team about the whole deal. You share your story with them? Yeah, I share the story. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. It's yep. a great story, man. I, yep. I'm, I'm so encouraged by it. And that's marked you to this day. Oh, yeah. You know? Yep. Yep. So. Well, um, man, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, thanks we for should, having uh, me. <laughs> you got anything else you want to get off your chest before we sign off? Oh, man. I don't think so. No. I mean, the the financial, the, I think that the bow on the, on the financial thing was just an exercise in humility. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, the theme in all of this is like fi- the financial humility I experienced the the pain and suffering from losing my mom and learning how to you know mourn with others requires humility mm-hmm. you know um leading a business for the glory of god like you were saying before just requires deep deep humility mm-hmm. you know and i'm not my my predisposition is not bent towards humility mm-hmm. it's towards self-protection and self-promotion mm-hmm. so um yeah that's the thing i would get off my chest is like pursue you know when you have the when when, when james says that god opposes the proud but gives mm-hmm. grace to the humble you can Amen. sense the opposition from god when you're being arrogant but then mm-hmm. the grace you receive in a disposition of humility is just it's it's Amen. beautiful yeah well said yeah Thanks for joining us today on the Vine Church Podcast. If you haven't done so already, we encourage you to subscribe. And we look forward to releasing some really engaging interviews in the next few weeks. Thanks for joining us today.